Well, hello, I'm Jeff. And to finish out our series, Things That Keep Us Up at Night, uh, before I get back next week from break, you have a real treat today. And it's a real privilege for me to introduce Gene Getz as our speaker. Gene is the one who started our church back in 1981 after having started other churches. Uh, in fact, God used him to start a whole movement of churches uh, all around the country, hundreds of churches and all around the world. Uh, he is also an author of over 60 books, including the Life Essentials Study Bible that you'll get a flavor of a little bit today. And he's just a really great guy. Uh, he's uh, a mentor in my life who passed the baton of leadership uh, here at Shea Soaks uh, 15, 16 years ago now. I still lean on him uh, as just an, an amazing, godly person and mentor. I am so glad uh, that he is speaking today. So let's give him a, a huge welcome as he's the founder of our church and, and just such an amazing person to speak to us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's, uh, it's really great. Great to be here. And thanks, Jeff, for that nice introduction. And uh, Elaine and I want to say thanks to both you and Christy for uh, serving us, Jeff, for being our pastor for these uh, 16 years since we passed the baton. And Jeff asked me to uh, culminate the series and to speak on the subject of depression, and specifically uh, Elijah's depression. And it's interesting, if you go to the New Testament to uh, the Epistle of James, who is the half-brother of Jesus, he wrote a little letter. And in that uh, particular letter, he makes reference to Elijah in the uh, Old Testament. And here's what he said in James chapter 5, verse 17. Elijah was a human being as we are. Now, that's very significant because he was one of the greatest Old Testament prophets. To show you how important he was in God's sight, you remember the transfiguration of Jesus? And you remember who was with Jesus when he was transfigured? Moses and Elijah. That's amazing. He was a wonderful, great prophet that God used. And yet, he was a human being, as we are. And we're going to see how human he was. And notice that it says, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the land. And then, three and a half years later, he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. Now, in essence, what James does is gives us a little synopsis of that three and a half years but when we go back into the Old Testament, into the book of First Kings, we have a lot of details relative to what happened during that three and a half years. It involved a uh, king of Israel by the name of Ahab. And in First uh, Kings chapter 16, <clears throat> here's what we read. 
But Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight more than all who were before him. Now, there were six kings before him. He was the seventh king in Israel. Jeroboam was the first. And he did more sin and evil than all the ones before him. They were all evil. But he was more evil than they were. And notice it says, Then as if following the sin of Jeroboam, who was very evil, son of Nebat, were not enough, he married Jezebel. And that was a serious mistake. He married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians, and then proceeded to serve Baal and bow and worship to him. You see, Jezebel was not a Jew. She did not worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She worshipped many false gods, and one of her major false gods was Baal, just a false god. And really, he was the god of the rain, as it were. That was one of the things about Baal. And if they wanted rain, they would worship Baal. And that's very significant in terms of what's going to happen. Because, let me just summarize for you what happened in chapter 17 of of 1 Kings. At God's command, Elijah marched right into the palace of King Ahab. And he said, Ahab, because of your sin and the sin of Israel, it's not going to rain in Canaan for three and a half years. And that was a tremendous judgment in terms of what would happen without rain. And he just turned and walked out and under God's protection before Ahab's police force could grab him, he's gone. And God protected him for three and a half years. That's a story in itself. But at the end of that three and a half years, Elijah once again appears. Now, there had been an all-points alert for his captivity for three and a half years, but God protected him. All of a sudden, he shows up in Ahab's court. He walks in, and in verse 19 of chapter 18, he said this. Ahab, now summon all Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel, along with the 400 prophets of Baal. Now, where did those 450 prophets of Baal come from? Remember Jezebel. She was a worshiper of Baal, so she led Ahab into Baal worship. 450 prophets. And Elijah said, I want you to bring those 450 prophets of Baal up to Mount Carmel. And then he said, I also want you to uh, bring the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Jezebel also had false prophets, 400 of them. And if you know anything about the origin of this kind of worship, it was total debauchery, total evil. Well, obviously, Jezebel said, no way am I going to Mount Carmel. But Ahab went up to the top of Mount Carmel. Now, it's interesting. Here's Mount Carmel in Israel. It's an incredible sight. 
And I've had the wonderful privilege on a number of occasions to be on the top of that mountain. In fact, here I am actually teaching the very passage that I'm going to teach you today from Mount Carmel on what happened there. If you look to my right, you'll see Jeff and Christy sitting over there because we were sharing the teaching. I happen to be teaching uh, this particular passage from Mount Carmel. Now, what happened there? It's absolutely incredible. Now, imagine Ahab's there. 450 prophets of Baal are there. And Elijah said, you guys, here are two bulls. And I want you to have the first pick, because I want you to know this is not a trick. Is what's going to happen. You go ahead and take the first bull. So they chose a bull. And they put it on the altar at Elijah's command. And he said, now, if, if your God Baal is so powerful, I want you to pray to him to send fire down from heaven and destroy that bull. And so they started dancing early in the morning. And they danced and they screamed and they wailed and they cut themselves even. They were in a frenzy. And that went on all the way to the noon hour and nothing had happened. In fact, Elijah taunted them a little bit. He said, uh, hey guys, Maybe Baal's sleeping. Shout a little louder. Wake him up. Maybe he's on a vacation. See, they believed that Baal would take vacations or he would sleep. He said, maybe he's on a vacation. Why don't you just keep going till he gets back? And so that revved them up, and they went all the way to the evening sacrifice, probably a total of eight hours, in this frenzy. And you can imagine... At the end of that time, they were exhausted, probably lying on the ground. And then Elijah steps forward, rebuilds the altar, puts a bull on the altar, digs a trench around the altar. Three times he said, I want you to bring buckets of water and put it on top of the altar, which ran down into the trenches. And then he stepped forward. And he said... Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Today, let it be known that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant. And at your word, I have done all these things. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that this people will know that you, the Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And the moment he ended that prayer, fire came from heaven, perhaps a lightning bolt of things to come, that destroyed the bull, started on fire, destroyed the altar, lapped up all the water. And the people are watching this at the foot of the mountain and all in the crevice of the mountain that had come to watch this demonstration. And they shouted, the Lord, 
He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Ahab the king was humbled, mortified. And then God orchestrated according to His will that with Elijah's command, all 450 of those prophets of Baal, their lives were taken. And Elijah, or, and, and then Elijah prayed. And as a result of his prayer, the rain came, the thunder came, the lightning came. It was a torrent of rain. It came down so hard you couldn't even see your hand in front of your face. And Ahab had a problem because he had to get back to his palace. And that was 20 20 miles up that valley. The Jezreel Valley. And by the way, just parenthesis, that's the valley that is mentioned in the book of Revelation where the final great battle will take place on earth called the Battle of Armageddon. 20 miles up to Jezreel. Elijah saw that he was in trouble. Even his horses couldn't see. So Elijah tucked his mantle around him and went down in front of those horses and grabbed them by the reins and ran 20 miles up the valley and led him all the way home to the palace in Jezreel. And what happened? Well, I'm sure Jezebel was looking out the windows at the torrent of rain and trying to see what was going on and Finally, they pulled in to some place where Ahab could get out of the chariot. And we read in chapter 19, verses 1 to 3, Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done. And how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. And so Jezebel fell on her face before God and said, He is God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Is that what happened? No way. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, May the gods, these false gods, punish me and do so severely if I don't make your life like the life of one of them, that is, those 450 prophets of Baal. Make your life like one of them, By this time tomorrow, you've got 24 hours to get out of town. Or Elijah, you had it. And so Elijah put back his shoulders and said, go ahead. God will protect me. Really? Uh Uh-uh. Something happened. Then Elijah became afraid. Very afraid. And he immediately ran for his life. In fact, he ran a hundred miles to Beersheba, going south in Israel. And then it said he left his servant and went another day's journey into the wilderness. And there he sat before the Lord and said, I want to die. He was in deep, deep depression. Now, isn't it interesting that God had done all these marvelous things, enabled him to do all that victory, 
to take the life of 450 prophets to bring fire from heaven. And there were other things that happened during the three and a half years that he was being protected by God. And at that point in time, he had no faith to believe. He was depressed. He lost all perspective. And he wanted to die, which is a sign of deep, deep depression. Now, here is the fascinating the fascinating aspect of the story, the encouraging aspect of the story. God did four things for him. Four things. First of all, he ministered to Elijah physically with food and rest. If you read the text, it says God put him to sleep, woke him up and fed him, put him to sleep, woke him up and fed him, And it said he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights, all the way to Mount Sinai, where God gave the law to Moses. Now, the interesting thing is, even though he had strength to go 40 days, he should have made it in 12 days. He's trudging, he's not healed, he's struggling. But God has strengthened him for the journey, slow as it was. And when he got there, he went into a cave. And in that cave, um, the Lord did something very significant. Because God said, what are you doing in that cave? And he comes out of the cave. Now, here's what God does. And I'm going to read it, and then I'll come back to it after I explain it. God clarified Elijah's spiritual and theological perspectives regarding God's presence aside from miraculous phenomena. And something very significant happened here in terms of the Lord getting that message across. He said, Elijah, I know you're afraid you're going to be killed, but I want you to come right out here and stand in front of the cave And while he was standing there, there was a mighty, powerful wind. But it says in the text, God wasn't in the wind. Follow that, there was a a mighty earthquake. And then stillness. And the text said God wasn't in the earthquake. And then there was a mighty fire that went across the sky. And it says, but God wasn't in the fire. And the end, it says, after these three major phenomenal happenings, it said there was a gentle whisper. Literally in the Hebrew, it says there was silence. But God was there. You see, Elijah had come to depend on the phenomenal. He had come to depend on being fed by the brooks, by the brook that was running dry, by the ravens, and being taken care of when he was with the widow, and where the meal never ran dry, and the jar of oil never ran dry, and he was able to raise a little boy from the dead, and have this incredible victory on Mount Carmel and bring this incredible rainstorm. 
But God was saying, that's not normal life, Elijah. I'm here no matter what. Now, that's very significant. And let me read the statement again, and you'll see what I'm, I'm trying to say. God clarified Elijah's spiritual and theological perspectives regarding God's presence aside from miraculous phenomena. And that's very significant in terms of our being stable emotionally, particularly in our Christian life. But God did another thing. Thirdly, God reassured Elijah that others would help him carry out his task. Even after this mighty demonstration, he went back into the cave again, repeated the same story. But he also said, when God said, what are you doing back in this cave? Elijah said, I'm the only one that's left. You know, one of the major marks of depression is when you feel you're absolutely alone. And God said, Elijah, you're not the only one. There are 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. 7,000. You're not alone. You see, God reassured him that he hadn't called him to this task all by himself. Yes, he had a special moment where God was using him, but it was in the context of 7,000 more who would stand with him and their faith in God. But there's a fourth thing, because it takes it a step deeper. God brought a Elisha into Elijah's life to be his friend, his close friend, and his constant companion. And as a result of Elisha coming in beside Elijah, they both went on in ministry, and God used them miraculously until God eventually took Elijah home to heaven in a whirlwind, which is an incredible story in itself. Now, I'm sure you're tracking with me in terms of application, because these are very, very practical points. But I want to I sharpen the focus a bit, because I think there are four things four steps for dealing with depression that come from what we've just seen in the life of Elijah and how God dealt with it. Number one, we need to take care of ourselves physically, emotionally, and spiritually because that is so important in maintaining our emotional stability. And God knew that. And that's where God began with Elijah, feeding him, sleep, rest. Remember, remember reading a book one time in terms of mental problems and illnesses, sleep the restorer, sleep the restorer. God designed that. I remember when I was teaching full-time at Dallas Seminary, a student came into my office one day and he was down in the mouth and horribly depressed. And he said, Prof, <clears throat> I'm embarrassed to even say this, but I'm not sure I believe in God anymore. I said, really? 
We talked a bit, and then I said, by the way, how much rest have you had the last couple of days? He said, well, I've, I've really virtually been up 72 hours working, getting ready for exams. I said, I tell you what, before we talk further, I want you to go home. Go out and get a great big meal and go to bed and sleep as long as you can sleep. And when you get up, if you're hungry, eat again and go back to sleep if you can. And then come back and see me. Three or four days later, he came back, a smile on his face, and he said, God exists. God exists. That's exactly what God did for Elijah in the midst of his depression. Number two, we need to have a correct view of the normal experiences in our Christian lives. I was raised in a religious sect where I basically was taught that my spiritual life was based on how I felt emotionally. And you know what emotions are like for all of us. They're up and down, and sometimes they're like a roller coaster. And when I was at the drop, the drop point in my emotions, I felt God had left me. And when I was at the high point in my emotions, I thought God was with me. So in that particular theological perspective, God was with me, God left me, God was with me, God left me. And God said to Elijah, I never leave you. If you know me, if you're part of my family, and you know me through the Savior, Jesus Christ, I am with you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. And I had to get my theology straight. That my faith was, my, my experience with God was not based on how I felt. It was my faith. That certainly helped me with my feelings, but... That's not the basis of my faith, because we all have our ups and downs through the crises of life, just the normal crises of life and the normal difficulties of life. Number three, we need the support and love of others in the body of Jesus Christ. When we started the First Fellowship Bible Church, way back in 1972, one of the very first things we did was to start small groups. Because we knew that people needed to have relationships with other people in the body of Christ. It's part of our spiritual growth. It's part of our stability. We need people who know us. We know them. We can pray for one another. We can encourage one another. We're not asked to live the Christian life by ourselves. If you're not a part of a small group, you need to be a part of one. You need the body of Christ. I need the body of Christ. We all need the body of Christ. And those relationships... And that's exactly what Elijah needed, because he felt alone. And one of the most significant problems in depression is being alone. You may feel you're alone, but if you're actually alone, that's the worst thing can happen. Elijah felt alone. So God reassured him. And then number four, we need special friends who are committed to biblical values. Special friends. You see, Moses, great Moses, needed an Aaron. Joshua needed a, a Caleb. David needed a Jonathan. And in the New Testament, Mary, the mother of Jesus, needed an Elizabeth. 
And here's the amazing thing. Jesus, the Son of God, in His humanity, needed the Apostle John, who was called the disciple that Jesus loved in a special way. Even the Son of God. And Elijah needed an Elisha. And we need close friends. I remember when I was single, living in Billings, Montana. I was finishing my college there. I was in ministry. And I became very, very disillusioned. Having come out of this religious sect, where I went through a certain a certain element of stabilization theologically and understanding my relationship with God. These three individuals that I looked up to, they were very key, got at odds with each other, got into difficulty. I was sort of in the middle of it, and it just totally, totally put me in a state of disillusionment and depression. And I tried to dig my way out of that. I was living by myself at that time. I tried to pray. It felt like my prayers were bouncing off the walls. I even tried to read the Psalms. And in reading the Psalms, I couldn't even read the Psalms, which were biblical prayers. And then God did something for me. That summer, he brought a man from Wheaton College. He was in the athletic department. And he was there for the summer. He, too, was single. But he roomed with me. And for three months, he became a friend. He encouraged me. We prayed together. We climbed mountains together. And that was one of the major things that God used in the midst of the deepest depression I've ever experienced in my life. I needed a friend. And we all do. Four practical steps that come from God himself. He knows we're human. He knew that Elijah was human. Just like all of us. Even though he's one of God's greatest servants. Now I want to say something else. There are many people in this room, you're here today, and you're live and well. Because you're on some type of medication that keeps you from having a heart attack. Aren't you thankful? That's medical science. There are some of you are free from cancer in God's providence, but because of medical science that brought healing into your life. I stand before you. I'm 87, and I am certainly thankful for blood pressure medicine. Because if I weren't on blood pressure medicine, I may not be here. I'm thankful for that. And thank God today, through medical science, we have medications that can help people with severe depression. They can help them to stabilize, in many instances, just so they can deal with the real issues that are troubling them over a period of time to help them and assist them. And I thank God for that. Never be ashamed of that. That's God's gift to medical science. And let me say one more thing. 
You know, we live in a world that's contaminated by sin, and there are people that are born to this world with ailments from which they'll never be healed in this life. We met them. They need assist the rest of their life. But you see, that happens also as it affects the emotions, the psychological aspect of our life, such as being bipolar. And we know that being bipolar is a disease. And we also know that there are people that could, cannot overcome that problem without medication. And some the rest of their life. I lived with a grandfather from the time I was six years old and lived with, in our home. And he was there until he died, actually, in our home with my parents. I saw him go through incredible numbers of cycles from manic to depressive, manic to depressive. But there was no medication. We didn't even know what it was. And today, with medication, my grandfather could have lived a normal life. A gal came up to me after Friday night service and said, I thank you for your message. It makes me feel good. I'm bipolar, and I've been on medication since I was very young. And she said, I thank God. She said, I'll probably be on it the rest of my life. And I said, that's good. And one of the things you don't want to do is when you feel good, if you're really bipolar, you don't want to go off your medication because that will be your temptation. Oh, she said, I know I learned that a long time ago. <laughs> so, see, God in His grace has given us all of these gifts. Elijah knew nothing about. Of course, he had experiences that we know nothing about in terms of his relationship with God and what God did for him. But let's thank God for the Word of God and these very practical guidelines. These four that come out of his life really are practical guidelines for all of us in the normal aspects of our lives. I'm going to close with Paul's prayer. And I love this. He prayed this for the Thessalonian believers. And when I say believers, it's important you understand that if you're not a part of the family of God, by faith, receiving Jesus Christ, you can become a part of the family of God through faith in Christ, receiving Him, acknowledging your sins, coming into the family by faith and enjoying all the benefits of being in the family of God and enjoying the answer to a prayer such as Paul's. Now may the God of peace, love that. What's the opposite of peace? Anxiety, stress, depression. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole what? Spirit, soul, and body. Spiritual, psychological, physical, be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all the people said, Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for the guidelines of Scripture. Where would we be without your word we're so privileged, so, so honored to have in our hands the truth that gives us these stories, both Old and New Testament, to guide us and to keep us walking in your will and experiencing 
your presence in our lives. No matter how we feel, thank you that you promised to never leave us, to never, ever forsake us. For we pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And amen. Thank you, Gene. So we have the founder of our church with us, and I want to ask you to take just a few more minutes and stay with us because I want to ask some questions about some things you've been doing lately. But first of all, a huge thank you for addressing a subject that is quite sensitive, but it's so critical for the Christian community to hear what you just taught today. And thank you for doing it so wisely um, with great discernment and wisdom. So thank thank you. Thank you. Um, Yes, we can clap for that. So for the last 15 years, you've been working on the the Bible study. The I'm sorry, I'm I'm, I'm blanking out on essentials. Yeah, and it, I, I know that people have to go pick up kids and things, but please stay with us if you can, because I think this is super important to hear. Uh, Life Essential Study Bible is what you've been working on, right. and uh, just lately there's a new version out. So tell us about that. Yeah, this this actually is an update on the whole Bible that came out several years ago. I'm so excited about it because, uh, by the way, it's not going to be released to the public until March. But because I happen to be the author and I'm here at this church, uh, they were shipped post-haste all the way from North, South Korea to be here. And they're here today. And uh, I'm really excited about it. But, uh, yeah, it's the, it's the first multimedia study Bible. And it's incredible, and I've been using it, but there's something super incredible. This is the first multimedia study Bible that's out there. That's right. And, um, and there's improvements made there. But tell us about the multimedia aspect. Well, let it. me do that by bringing up on the screen a uh, – actually, this is a page right out of the Bible from the text that I preached on. And you'll see the story there highlighted in blue. And then there's a principle laid right into the text – and then there's the principle and the, and the commentary. And then you'll see down at the corner a little QR code. And you have that right here open, uh, Jack. And I'm going to take my phone and go to a special app, the Life Essentials QR Reader. And when I do that, I can scan that little QR code, the very thing you're looking at. And I'm going to bring it up, and it's going to bring a video up of my teaching that principle and so you can see that. Let's take it to the big screen, and here's what you can see on Discouragement phone. and depression. When we experience discouragement and even depression, we should evaluate the degree to which we are physically, psychologically, and spiritually exhausted. Here now is Gene Getz. That principle certainly grows out of the life of Elijah and what happened, not only in preparation for that uh, incredible a challenge he faced on Mount Carmel, but also what actually happened on Mount Carmel. And so I go on and I'll teach for about 10 minutes and explain that particular principle. But from Genesis to Revelation, you'll find 1,500 principles and 1,500 videos. That's a lot so of videos. That's, that's, that's 300 hours of, of teaching. Yeah. And I know that God is using this uh, right here in our church, right here in our community. Uh, You've got a story about that. Share that with us. Yeah. uh, It's just so exciting. I get emails almost every day, every week at least, 
of people's lives are being changed, how they use it. In fact, one story I just discovered a couple of weeks ago with a couple in our church, uh, Dan and Lisa Reese, and they go out to uh, Stone Creek Campus. Stone Creek Campus, and they're probably listening today. Hi, y'all. But anyway, uh, this is a story they shared, and I said, could I share your story? And just brief, uh, here's the story of what God's doing in their life with the Bible. I love the Life Essential Study Bible because it has taken me to places that I've just never been able to go before in, in studying. I've been studying the Bible for a long time. I started when I was probably about 27. Although I had been raised in the church, I never really read the Bible much before, but I started then. And I read through the Bible a lot, um, went to a lot of Bible studies, but never experienced anything like this. Now we read the Bible, we access the videos, and we experience Gene's teaching. And it takes us in the Old Testament to what was going on then, and it takes us also to the New Testament and helps us understand how the two work together and how God had this plan before the world was ever created. And you can just see it through Gene's teaching. The Life Essential Study Bible for me um, took a black and white situation and colorized it. It opened up a whole new world to me, uh, having gone to Israel a year and a half ago and then to see what Gene is taking and colorizing for my world. Uh, I was not an active uh, Bible reader, and I always felt ashamed of that. And uh, now, having studied, and we're starting with the, the first uh, books in the Bible, and we're now in Numbers, and, and daily, Lisa and I read um, the Bible and go through Gene with his QR codes and and uh, for me, it's been uh, just awesome. It's been a, a life-changing situation. It's developed our marriage. It's opened up communication. And uh, I just feel so blessed to be able to read that daily and to know that uh, doing something with my wife is helping us to become closer to uh, Christ. That is powerful. Isn't that exciting? And that's and, the kind of stories we're getting all the time. And I know people are using it. Very creatively, God's using it right here in the community. He's using it in prisons, but he's also using it all over the world. It and is. And impacting a lot of leaders and equipping leaders all over the world. Tell us about yeah, that. Yeah, and that's something I never anticipated, Jack, when I took on the project. But now it's become like a seminary in a box all over the world for particularly pastors who've had no formal training, and there are millions of them. For example, I'll give you an illustration. Here's a, a group of pastors, 25 different pastors from 25 different countries. And I taught them how to use the Bible. We gave it to them as a gift. They couldn't afford it themselves. We gave it to them, and I trained them on how to use it. Uh, this is what we're doing all over the world. For example, here are pastors in Myanmar, and you see they're using their smartphones. Today, there are more smartphones in the world than people, literally. And they're used in, in faraway communities, remote communities, so they can access these videos. And most of them understand English because English is becoming the language of the world. Here we're delivering, this is a pastor from Nepal, and we ship those three boxes of Bibles, that's 36 Bibles, 
He received them and he took them to these pastors. The next slide. And they were trained by someone that really is a part of our church. That's Roland Foreman in the blue shirt there near the middle, uh, partnered with us in New Zealand. Yeah, and we don't just give them the Bibles. We train them on how to use it, how to prepare messages. Because for them, it's like a seminary in a box. Here's, uh, Here's Philippines. There's 50 pastors in the Philippines. The trainers are right there in front. We shipped them the Bibles, gave them to them. Uh, here's an exciting picture. These are students in Romania, and we just sent them 50 Bibles. And the very day they got them, I got emails how they were using them. They all speak English, every one of them. Here are pastors in Vietnam. We had to carry those in carefully, but we did, and we trained them. Here are pastors in India. We sent 30 to North India. These 30 pastors are over 1 million Believers in northern India, and most of those pastors have had no formal training. Mm. And so they wrote back and they said, we need another 200. And so here's Dave Powers, my assistant. That's what 200 Bibles look like in those boxes. And we shipped those uh, to northern India. And so one of the doors God's opened is for us to make Bibles available literally all over the world. And I love the fact that it's seminary in a box because here you are, a seminary professor, uh, Bible teacher. I just wish it had been around when I was going to seminary because it would have saved me a lot of money and a lot of time just to uh, have this tool right here. But how incredible, 87 years old, and God is using a project you're working on right now to change the world and to bring thousands, if not millions, of people to Christ around the world. So. Um, That is amazing. So, real briefly, yes, we can clap for that as well. And, and of course, we are making it available. Yes, and I want to talk, I want to ask you about that. Yeah. Um, One of the things that you do, and you've got a new version right now available just to us, and and it's available in the lobby, all the lobbies at all of the campuses. But something unique you do is for every Bible that is bought, you give a Bible away, and that, that right. enables you to give those, these Bibles all That's over right. the world. Talk That's to us about that. one of the ways that. we can do that, because all the profits go into our Bible fund. And we, even, we not only pay for the Bibles, but we pay for the shipping. And sometimes the shipping costs as much as the Bibles to send them all over the world. But, for example, you know, this weekend we've already sold hundreds of Bibles, which means we can give hundreds away. And so we'd love for you to take a look at it for yourself. But remember, if you buy a Bible, you're giving one to someone in Africa or India or some other place who can't afford it. When I signed them, uh, like there were people today that brought, one guy brought ten Bibles. And I just signed them for him and he bought them for friends, relatives. I said, you just gave ten Bibles to ten people in the world who couldn't afford it. A big smile on his face. People love it. Absolutely. Well, thank you for doing that and for faithfully serving. And I just want to finally say, um, I cannot thank you enough. And the people of Chase Oaks Church cannot thank you enough for being a faithful, hang on one second, a faithful husband for 64 years. years. And let me say, there's one person, my friend, for 64 years, my wife, Elaine, who stood with me. I could not have done this project without her. So, sweetheart, wherever you are, thank you. Absolutely. 
She's brought me out of a lot of depression. Yes, she has. <laughs> She's a good person to talk to, by the way. If you're depressed, you should talk to Elaine Getz. She's an amazing woman. Um, 64 years, faithful husband, faithful father, faithful pastor, author. Now God's using you to equip pastors all over the world. And we just owe you so much honor to, for what you've done for this church and for the world. So thank you, thank you. Let's thank Dr. Gene Getz. Thank you.